You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. A person who's actually going to be able to experience that transformative change, which is, uh, which is so essential and so vital to, uh, to our growth and our development as, uh, as B'nai Torah, as Mivak Hashem, as those who are seeking to really restore and to, uh, to restore the strength of our attachment uh, with, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and what exactly is going to be uh, the process. So tshuva is commonly translated uh, as repentance. I think in most uh, translations you will see it as such. And according to the Oxford English Dictionary, repentance is, quote, to review one's actions, and feel contrition or regret for something one has done or omitted to do, especially in religious contexts, to acknowledge the sinfulness of one's past action or conduct by showing sincere remorse in undertaking to reform in the future, end quote. And that is the definition of repentance. And this is very similar, as we know, to the mechanics which are described by all of the Rishonim, again, putting aside the disagreement, whether there's three steps or there's four steps or there's five steps, but the basic uh, formulation of tshuva is that a person has to have charata, person has to regret the averas which, which were done, person has to do vidui, person has to confess the sins which they have committed, and a person has to make a kabbalah alasi, they have to make a commitment towards the future in order to, uh, to make sure that they don't do that, uh, that avera again. But what's interesting about the uh, about the uh, the word tshuva is that the shorish of it really is comes from shuv, which means to return. And you don't find anybody translating tshuva as to return, but on a fundamental level in terms of the shorish of the word. So that's really where the origin of the word uh, comes from. And the question is, what exactly are we returning to? What's the point that we are returning to in the uh, the tshuva uh, process? Sometimes we think of it is that if I commit an Avera on Monday, so my tshuva is going to be, it's sort of like going back in your computer to a previous setting where it was, uh, the, the computer was working uh, properly. So all you're trying to do is get back one step before the Avera was committed. And if you just get yourself one step back to before the Avera was committed, so that is going to be the totality of the tshuva process. That was an effective charata, vidui, kabbalah, la'asid, and now I go back to Sunday as opposed to Monday when I committed the, uh, the Avera. But is that all we're really trying to do? In the Torah that we read this morning, we say, Shuva Yisrael ad Hashem Elkecha. The Shuva isn't really to get, isn't simply to get us to that moment right before the sin was committed. The purpose of Shuva is to get us back ad Hashem Elkecha, all the way back to Hashem. And we don't really think of returning that we're going back to that moment. That's not where I was right before I sinned. So the question is, what exactly is tshuva in terms of returning? Where are we returning to? And another important question that we have to ask in order to understand the deeper meaning of what tshuva is, and in order to be able to identify what exactly is going to be involved, is we have to wonder how the two days of Rosh Hashanah fit into the Aser tshuva. We all know that there's 10 days of repentance, Sarasimei uh, Tshuva, begins with the first day of Rosh Hashanah, it ends with Yom Kippur, and that uh, those bookends are going to be those 10 days. So from Tzom Gedalia until Yom Kippur, so we understand, we add extra slichos into davening, we spend a lot of time 
contemplating and reflecting on the sins which we have committed over the course of the year. We'll say many times, Ashabnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, we say that many times during that, uh, that week, during those eight days of Tzom Gedalia all the way until Yom Kippur. But the first two days of the Aserah which are Rosh Hashanah, we don't say Vidu at all. There's no Vidu, there's no, uh, there's no uh, hint of confession to our sins. In fact, some of the uh, the postcom hold that even in Avinu Malkeinu, we should go out of our way not to say those lines which contain references to sin, because the days of Rosh Hashanah are not days of Slicha. They're not days where we should be identifying that. Those are days of Malchus. But if their fundamental definition, if the fundamental uh, aspect of those days is really Malchus, is our focus on Kadosh Baruch Hu's reign in his dominion in the universe. So why do they get counted as the two of the days of, uh, of the Aserah Shemei Tshuva? Really, it would seem to be more accurate to say that there are Shmona Yemei Tshuva. There are eight days of Tshuva, two days of Rosh Hashanah, eight days of Tshuva, and that would seem to be, uh, that would seem to work out well. So why do we go ahead? How can we characterize the two days of Rosh Hashanah as some of the Aserah Shemei Tshuva, as two of the uh, days of the Aserah Shemei Tshuva, when we don't do any Tshuva on those, uh, those days at all. And then another set of difficulties, which we have to, uh, to think about and we have to reflect upon, is a little bit more personal. And whatever your age happens to be, so you've observed, undoubtedly you've observed Rosh Hashanah many times, Rosh Hashanah, Aserah Shemei Tshuva, Yom Kippur many times, and uh, you have to ask yourself, again, it's a private question, but you have to ask yourself whether during the past years of Rosh Hashanah, Aser Shemei Tshuva, and Yom Kippur, have you been able to generate meaningful, lasting change in your behavior? I think that for most people, the Averas which you plan to confess about this coming year are likely Averas which you committed last year and the year before that, and five years before that, and 10 years before that, because the core issues which we struggle with, we seem to be constantly struggling with. Whether it's going to be Lashon Hara, whether it's anger, whether it's what we eat, whether it's our davening related, whatever it happens to be, those things which we are focused to, hopefully we're focusing on this year, and we really want to change this year, we already wanted to change them last year. And we want to change them the year before that. So why is this change so difficult? Why do we struggle so much, as sincere as we are, as inspired as we are in the season, to want to change and to go through the mechanics of tshuva and to do all of those things? Why is it so difficult for us to, to, to change? Why is it so hard to just make a firm decision? I'm going to stop doing behavior X, whatever that behavior is, whatever, fill, fill in the blank for you, but I'm just going to stop doing that and then simply follow through with that commitment. Why is it that year after year after year after year, we seem to be focused on the same Averas which, which we've done in, in the past, and we haven't seen this fundamental transformative change in our lives, like we talked about in terms of being a Baal Tshuva, rather than somebody who is simply a Shav, somebody, somebody who's simply doing the process of Tshuva. Let's take as an, as an example, just to best illustrate what exactly our struggle is over here. Let's take a person who is, has anger issues. Like the Mishnah in Pirkei Evo says, somebody who's noach lichos, somebody who is easily angered. Now, the friend, this person, this friend of ours, who's easily angered, so he's fully aware, he's self-aware of the fact that he has these angry outbursts, and he's tried repeatedly to stop. 
He doesn't like the fact that he gets angry, that he has a, a hair trigger and gets anger, angry so easily. He sincerely wants to control his anger, his outbursts, it affects his work life, it affects his home life, it affects his life, his relationship with his children and his spouse. And really, he wants to go ahead and he wants to, to do better. When the moment comes that he's got to go ahead and exercise that self-control and not be angry, that's when he's completely out of control and doesn't seem to be able to, uh, to do so. And over the years, as much as he has, has a sincere desire to change and to stop being so angry and responding, responding with such strong anger in his, uh, in his response to things which he doesn't like, he's been unsuccessful. And so far, nothing has changed. So our friend may have consulted with a friend. He may have gone to his Rav. He may have gone to his mentor. He may have gone to a therapist. He may have gone to all sorts of different uh, people. And the people will likely say, likely what he'll hear in some form or another is you got to work on it. You got to work on your mitos. If you spend time in yeshiva or seminary, so you may have heard a shmooz or a person says, you always have to be working on your mitos. And whatever negative trait you may want to discuss and that you may be struggling with, you got to work on it. You got to work on it. You got to work on it. And you'll get, and you'll get better. If you keep working, you got to keep working on it until you get it. And the question is, how do you work on it? What exactly is that process that our friend who gets so angry so easily, what is he going to do to go ahead and to, uh, to c- control himself? Is it something, is it just a matter of developing better self-control? If the person would use his self-control to go ahead and stop being angry, is that going to be successful for him? Is it similar to dieting? Can a person who wants to diet and lose weight, could they simply say, I'm just going to stop eating non-healthy foods. I'll stay away from the sugar. I'll stay away from the carbs, whatever the latest diet fat is. I'll just stop eating those foods and then I'll lose the weight. Easy schmeasy. And there's going to be no problem. Anybody who's tried to diet, and I say tried specifically, uh, knows that it doesn't work for most people. Simply saying, I'm going to exercise the necessary self-control to stop eating the foods that I shouldn't eat. Most times it doesn't work. Nine times out of 10, it doesn't work. 99 times out of 100, I don't know whatever the percentage is, but for most people, it doesn't work. We can't go ahead and just flip the switch on the self-control button and think to ourselves, until now, the reason why I've I've been eating as much as I have is because I didn't turn on the self-control button. But now I'm going to turn on the self-control button. And once my self-control button is on, so I'll be successful at being able to control myself and I won't do those things anymore. Is character change? Is our friend who struggles with anger? Is dieting? Is it just a matter of exercising self-control? Seemingly not. Because we try and we try and we try. Or why is self-control something which is so difficult for us to be able to go ahead and just flip that, uh, that, that switch on? Everybody has heard, I assume, in the name of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, his statement that it's easier to study all of Shas than it is to change one character trait. And it's a nice thing to hear. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, zug, as they say. It's an interesting uh, statement, which people say, what exactly did he mean by that? Now, the difficulty of learning Shas every day, 45 minutes, 2,711 days, that's a lot of effort, a lot of time, especially when you do it early in the morning. It's something which is not an easy thing. So I can sort of gauge and understand, have a frame of reference to understand the difficulty of learning all of Shas. But how could it be that, that, that changing a character trait is something which is going to be even harder, than, even harder than that? Once again, if it's just a matter of self-control, why can't our friend who's Noach Lichos, who has, gets angry so easily, why can't he simply just exercise the necessary self-control? 
and just not get angry. Why is that? Why is that such a struggle that we have? Why is it so elusive? Why is it something which is so difficult for our friend to be able to get a hold of? He knows he wants to do that. He's sincere in terms of that desire. Why is it something which is so difficult to be able to uh, to get control over? And why does he continue to struggle year after year with his anger issues as much as he sincerely wants to change? As we know, it's a fundamental aspect of, uh, of Judaism. It's a fundamental principle of Judaism. However, I think we give a little bit too much uh, expectation of Bechir Chavshis. And what I mean by that is, is that as we look at other people's behavior, we often assume that whatever behavior somebody else is doing, whatever they did, that was an exercise of their Bechir Chavshis. That was an exercise of their free will. They made a conscious choice to do whatever it is that they did, and therefore I have the right to be offended, I have the right to expect them to change, I have the right to go ahead and criticize how they're responding and point out the fault in what they were doing, because they just exercised their Bechira, everybody has Bechira, they exercised their Bechira, they made a choice, and as a result of their choice, they should have to suffer the consequences. Why should they be able to get away with their choice when it leads to such negative things? And certainly our friend, the friend who's struggling with anger issues, that's the feedback that he gets in his life. Everybody is looking at him and saying, you're choosing to be angry, just stop being angry. We're not going to let it go anymore. We're not going to stand for this anymore. We have no patience. We have no tolerance for your anger, angry outbursts anymore. And you have to stop. And everybody looks at him as if he's a Baal Bechir, as if he's making a choice to go ahead and make that and have that angry outburst. And therefore we respond to him negatively because we see it as an exercise of his Bechir Chavshis. Let's take this assumption for a moment and let's just follow it through in terms of what exactly it, w- it would mean. What this means is he's at, let's take a, an example of work. His coworker goes ahead and does something, makes a mistake. So at the moment he makes a mistake, which our friend now realizes it's going to take him another hour to go ahead and fix that mistake, whatever the, the circumstances. So at that moment, the person makes the mistake. Our friend realizes that mistake. Now, freeze. Freeze that moment because he didn't have the anger, angry outburst yet. He just heard the fact that his coworker made a mistake. So at the moment that he hears that his coworker made a mistake, what we imagine takes place in his head is the following conversation. That our friend says to himself, okay, I now have this all happening in that fraction of a second. But then if we break it down in slow-mo, what happens is I now have two choices in front of me. I have two choices in front of me of how I'm going to respond to my coworker who just made this terrible mistake, which is going to cost me an hour of time. I could either respond calmly, say, it's okay, don't worry about it, we'll be able to fix it, well, you've now learned a lesson, you won't let it happen again, and don't let this, uh, don't uh, sweat it, don't sweat about it at all, it's going to be fine, it's going to be okay, and we'll, 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 uh, we'll fix it, Baruch Hashem, it's fixable and you don't need to worry, no major uh, consequence. Or, on the other hand, I could have an angry outburst. I could yell and I could scream and I could get angry and I can make him feel bad and I'll demean him and make him feel incompetent. And that will probably make sure that he doesn't make the mistake again. Hmm, which should I do? Should I respond calmly, encouragingly, or should I respond angrily with an angry outburst which frightens him? Calm, angry. Calm, angry. I think angry is going to be the right choice. 
I think I'm going to go with angry because if I have an angry outburst, that's going to get that's going to get me what I want, and then the scene continues and he explodes. Is that what happens? Is that what actually happens inside of his head? That it, that at the moment that, that he heard the bad news that the coworker made a mistake, he thought through what his response is going to be, and he consciously made a decision that he's going to respond with an angry outburst. Of course not. Nobody goes through that, uh, that that process. Nobody consciously makes a decision to go ahead and have that uh, that that uh, that angry outburst. That would be that would require uh, 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 um, uh, that then if that were we could expect of him self control. If he's if he's going back and forth in his head, calm, angry, calm, angry, calm, angry, and he chooses angry, then we would be right to go ahead and criticize his choice. We have to say, listen, you exercise your Bechir you are aware at the moment that you could either go this way or you could go that way, and you chose to go that way, which is the angry outburst, and therefore suffer the consequences be- because of that. But that's not what happens. Self-control, by definition, means that you had a moment where you realized that there were two options in front of you, you chose option B as opposed to option A. So then we could say, listen, it was a bad choice. You should have exercised self-control. You should have gone this way rather than that way. And since you did it, we're going to say that you didn't exercise your self-control. But this fellow, our, our friend who's suffering with anger issues, he didn't go through that thought process. He didn't think of two choices. He just responded. He responded almost instinctively. It didn't even was it didn't even occur to him at the moment that he could respond with calm before he even had a chance to consider that. The angry outburst was already out of his mouth. If our friend who's dieting is staring at that chocolate cake for like five minutes, they're at a chasana, and they go ahead and they put that cake in front of you, and they're staring at it for five minutes, I want to eat it, I'm dieting, I want to eat it, I'm dieting, I want to eat it, I'm dying, and then they just dig in and they eat it, so then you could say the person didn't have self-control should have had better self-control, then you wouldn't have had those calories, and then you don't have to exercise 16 hours the next day to go ahead and work that off. Then we could say that it was a failure on the level of self-control. But our angry fella, he didn't have a choice. He wasn't thinking through two options at the time. He heard the news that his coworker made a mistake, and the outburst, the angry outburst just burst out without even having a chance to contemplate the fact that there may be a different, a different approach. So to think that self-control is going to be able to help our angry friend get control of his anger, that's just not going to work. Because it, didn't, it wasn't the choice which he, which he went through. And since it wasn't a choice, we can't expect him to go ahead and choose better. And when we criticize people, this is an important thing to know, that when we look at other people's behavior and we always think that it's a consequence of their choice, that they thought through what they should do and they made a choice and therefore we're responding, that, we're responding to that choice most times it was not a choice, and our response is over the top. And this is especially true with children. For those of you who have little children, you have to be aware of this. Because when children make mistakes, when they break things, when they don't do what they are supposed to do, and we respond as if they made a choice to break that plate. They made a choice to go ahead and put a hole in the drywall. They made a choice to go ahead and take that permanent marker and write on the wall in a way which cannot be cleaned up. It wasn't a conscious choice which they made. They may have been interested in doing what they did, but they didn't think of it in terms of what are the consequences of their actions, of the different options which were available, and making a conscious choice to do this destructive thing. And if we respond as if they made a choice when they didn't, 
then we're overreacting. In all likelihood, it's not going to be productive as far as the big picture in terms of the relationship and helping them mature into being able to make better decisions in the future if this wasn't really a conscious choice which they, which they made, which could have used better self-control. So if it's not self-control, so how is this angry person going to be able to go ahead and respond better? If it's not simply a matter of exercising his bechira, of using his self-control in order to be able to make wiser choices. So how exactly is he going to get control over this? So I want to introduce you, those who are not familiar with it, to a therapeutic model called IFS, Internal Family Systems. And one of the fundamental principles of this IFS approach of internal family systems is the belief, is the belief that every person has a core self. This core self, we would say in the, from Jewish terminology, we would call that a neshama. But in IFS, they refer to it as a core self. And that core self, just like the neshama, doesn't get damaged or harmed or injured or become schmutzig really internally as a result of Averas. So the core self, that part of the neshama also cannot be harmed, damaged, or injured. In the core self, the characteristics, the defining characteristics of the core self are calm, confident, curious, centered, creative, playful, adventurous, and stable. Those are wonderful terms, wonderful traits for a person to be, uh, to be in possession of. And if this is the core self, which every person possesses, every person who's alive possesses this, so then we have to ask ourselves, why when we look at other people's behavior, why when we observe other people around us, other family members, other coworkers, other neighbors, other people in shul and whatnot, why don't we see them being guided by these traits of calm, confident, curious, centered, creative, playful, adventurous, and stable? And then we have to look at ourselves in the mirror. We have to ask ourselves, do we see ourselves as calm, confident, curious, centered, creative, playful, adventurous, and stable? And I think the answer to both of those questions is not. We don't necessarily, maybe one or two of these traits on occasion, but by and large, we don't see other people conducting their lives consistent with these traits. And we certainly don't see ourselves as conducting our lives consistent with these traits, which means that we're not acting from self, that our core self isn't guiding our behaviors and guiding our thinking process, but there's something else. So what is it if it's not our core self? So as we know, nobody survives childhood uh, without wounds. Now those wounds may be a scraped knee, a scraped elbow, you may get stitches above the eye, and it may leave a scar. But there's also more fundamental wounds than the ones which appear on the outside of of our body. We also don't escape youth emotionally unscarred. And over the course of our lifetime, and of course certainly in, in childhood, so we're going to accumulate all sorts of emotional wounds and emotional scars. What do I mean by that? So take, for example, uh, I had it in the house here the uh, the, uh, last week. Young children love to sing. When they play by themselves, they reach that very cute age where they could sit there and they could finally play by themselves. They could build with the Lego or they could do whatever it is that they're they're, they're doing uh, downstairs, occupying themselves. And when they do so, they often will begin to sing. If they're not in a conversation, if they're not having a conversation with themselves, with the different characters that, that they've created in their mind, they may very well be singing. When they go to school, they learn songs at school, and they'll come home and they'll, uh, they'll go ahead and they'll sing those. Now, what happens very often is they don't actually know the words. 
didn't process fully the words which they are, they, they are singing. Certainly when they're trying to sing a Hebrew song and they don't know the Hebrew, they're not fluent, they may not know it. And they may not even be able to carry a tune. They may get every note off or they may get every, every other note off. But as far as they're concerned, it doesn't make a difference. They're enjoying themselves. They're in seventh heaven. They have their Legos. They have their project. No siblings are bothering them. And they could just sit there calmly and safely and securely. And they could play and they could sing all by themselves. And the singing is terrible. But they don't care. What do they care? Nobody's uh, supposed to be listening to them anyways. It's all happening inside of their own head. And they're enjoying the process of singing. At some point in their lives, in their childhood, somebody's going to come over to them and tell them that they can't sing. Maybe a parent, maybe a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, an older sibling, a neighbor, a babysitter, whoever it is is going to say, Yankala, you know, those aren't the words. Yankala, you can't even carry a tune. You're not hitting any of the notes uh, correctly. You're singing it completely wrong. And if that message is conveyed to the child in a way where the child is going to be humiliated or the child is embarrassed by the fact that somebody is criticizing what they're, they're going to do, that leaves a scar. That's going to leave an emotional scar. And that child's singing career has now come to a screeching halt. That child is not going to sing in public again, is not going to want anybody to hear them again. Going to their bar mitzvah to have to sing, if it's a boy at the bar mitzvah, is something which is going to be very difficult uh, for them. They're never going to be the one who's going to lead the seaboard, Kabbalah Shabbos, because they don't sing in public. They already know that they don't sing in public. And this scar and this wound can take with them all the way through the rest of their lives. They can be a chassan by their kala's uh, parents Shabbos table the first time and his future father-in-law will say Yankel why don't you start us off with a Shabbos nigan and he's just going to freeze he's not going to know what to do with himself because he doesn't sing in public but what's he supposed to do now he's going to say no to his future father-in-law and he's going to be in that fraction of a second he's going to be so torn and in so much pain because of that scar which he developed during his his childhood and he's going to refuse to sing in public because it conjures up too much pain because potentially that one time when he was first informed that he doesn't sing well, and that's, going, that's it, that wound is going to be deep enough that he's not going to want to sing in public ever again. Now, it's at that point, at that moment when the child is told that he doesn't sing well, so the core self goes into hiding. In the IFS system, internal family systems, what that's called is it's an exile. We literally, we exile that part of the child, that singing part of the child will say, and we're just going to hide him in a basement somewhere, in a dark room somewhere. He's not allowed to come out because when he comes out, the last thing that he knows, the last thing he experienced was pain, was what wounded him, is what injured him emotionally. And therefore, as a means of protection, we're going to go ahead and we're just going to put him away in exile so that he should not come out because we don't want to risk the possibility of experiencing that, uh, that pain again. And the rejected, wounded, traumatic parts of our lives, we have many exiles which are hidden away somewhere which we don't want to take out because it conjures up too much pain. The memories of that are too painful, even if it's not something that we could recall specifically, but we know that it's there. And we know that when this thing happens, we have a very strong response. In our, our psychological response to those emotional injuries, the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu wired the brain is in order to make sure that the exile, that pained part, everything is referred to as parts, that pain part shouldn't have to do it. So Baruch Hu wired the mind so that we put protectors in place to make sure that we don't have to experience that pain again. 
And again, just very briefly, they identify, IFS identifies two different categories of protectors. There are managers and there are firefighters. And I'll explain what each of them is. A manager is a proactive protector. The manager's job is to handle and structure the environment in such a way to make sure that the exile shouldn't have to experience any pain. In some traits which serve this managerial role of controlling the environment to protect the person from, uh, from harm, so to shield the person from criticism and associated pain, so that may be people-pleasing, perfectionism, and self-sabotage. So all of those people trying to keep everybody else happy so nobody will criticize, trying to do everything absolutely perfect so that nobody should be able to be critical, and even self-sabotage, if you tell yourself ahead of time that this is terrible and this is worthless and this is not a good job, which I did, if you say that from the very outset, when somebody criticizes later on, it doesn't hurt because I already told myself that this is going to be no good, that I'm not capable of doing so. And since I already told myself that this is bad, that also is a way of controlling the environment. So I shouldn't have to experience more pain of the criticism which may come my way. Firefighters, in contrast to the manager, which is proactive, a firefighter is reactive. If the manager didn't do his job sufficiently of controlling the environment to shield everybody from pain, and somehow the pain penetrated and the pain got through uh, anyways, the firefighter is going to respond very strongly in order to make sure to either numb the pain or create a diversion from that pain. And that's a way to make sure that we shouldn't have to feel the strength, we shouldn't have to feel it at all, or it shouldn't be as painful, it shouldn't be at the same searing pain as it would be if we weren't uh, distracted. In some traits which are associated with manage, with, with firefighters, are anger issues, that's a friend with the, uh, the, uh, the, the anger issues. So his response is an immediate response to the pain of what it is that, uh, that he's responding to addictions and eating disorders and binging of all sorts of varieties, all of these are ways that we could go ahead and we could either numb the pain or distract ourselves from the pain so we don't have to experience it uh, fully. And they manage the pain and they make it bearable. So we have, there's the core self, which is, as we said, is calm and confident and has all those positive traits. They're the exiles. That's the result of what happens when we experience pain. Most often in childhood, the various experiences which we had, which created scars, which created wounds, which we carry with us and continue to, uh, to, to be there. And then you have the, uh, the managers, you have the protectors, or the, uh, the, the, man, the, the managers and the firefighters whose job it is either to control the environment the managers to make sure that pain should not get through. And in the event that pain does get through, how are we going to manage that pain? Are we going to numb the pain, let's say with an addiction, with a substance, with a distraction, or are we going to distract ourselves and we'll go ahead and we'll binge, watch whatever it happens to be, or we'll distract ourselves some, some other way. So when we talk about working on yourself, working on your mitos, working on a particular trait, our frame, working on his, his anger, what we mean is, we're trying to become self-aware and mindful of those different parts. In other words, our angry friend, he needs to think about what is triggering his angry outbursts. What's triggering his angry outbursts isn't necessarily the mistake that the coworker made today. What the, co the mistake that the coworker made today is reminding him of some other wound or injury which he accumulated sometime earlier in life. And that is now what he's experiencing in the moment 
is sending him back to that original painful experience. And he's responding, in all likelihood, he couldn't respond angrily back then and take control of the situation. So now to compensate that and to shield himself from the pain he experienced originally, he is going to respond with an angry outburst now as a way of protecting himself from the pain. I'm not uh, helpless. And I'm capable of defending myself and whatever the, uh, the, the psychology is going to be. But he's responding now, ultimately, to what happened earlier in life. And we have to ask ourselves, if a child, for example, if a child is misbehaving, so do, why do we respond with impatience, annoyance, and anger, rather than calm curiosity and compassion? And it's somebody as parents of young child, of uh, teenage children, of adult children, whatever it is, when a child is do something, does something that we don't like, and we respond with those negative traits, impatience, annoyance, and anger, rather than calm, curiosity, and compassion, the question is, we have to ask ourselves, why are we responding that way? Why are these negative traits arising now? Why are they coming to the forefront right now? Why are they the response which I am having, rather than the core self-traits of being calm, being curious, and being compassionate. A newborn, newborn baby cries, nobody, for most normal people, they don't get angry about it. They get, for the, to a large degree, they're curious about it. Oi, what's bothering you? Are you hungry? Do you have a dirty diaper? Do you have gas? Do you need to burp? We're trying to figure out what exactly is bothering them because we're compassionate towards them and we're caring towards them and we're curious about what they're experiencing, which is causing them distress. And that's the way we respond to babies. But somehow as a child gets older, to a large degree it happens as language develops, but somehow we lose sight of that. And at some point we transform, we get shifted over, and we no longer respond with our core self-traits of calm and curious and compassion, and instead we get annoyed, and we get angry at what's going on, and as a result of that, we're not responding out of self, we're not responding from our core self, there's some part of us which is triggered, and one of our managers or one of our firefighters has now come online, and our angry friend who struggles with his angry outbursts, he has to think for himself, what is happening that's triggering this angry outburst? What is it going back to? What is it traced to? What am I trying to accomplish? What is my mind trying to accomplish by having this, uh, this angry outburst? Now, it's not going to happen in the moment that he has the outburst. It has to be in a calm, reflective moment when he can think about it with a clear head and say, what was I trying to accomplish? What am I defending? What pain was I experiencing that I'm trying to counter with this angry outburst? And that is the work which is done when we talk about working on Midos. It's not the self-control of trying to get control of the anger. It's the curiosity, really, of trying to understand where does this anger come from? What is it responding to? What is it trying to accomplish when it comes out, when this part comes and dominates and becomes a defining way of my response is this anger. I don't want it to happen that way. So why is it happening that way? Growth is not going to come by exercising greater self-control. We've all had that experience and self-control doesn't work because in the moment, it's not a choice which we're making. The real growth is going to come from being mindful of those behaviors, being curious about them, and trying to understand fundamentally where do, they, where do they come from? What are the protectors? What are the managers and what are the firefighters? What are they trying to, uh, to accomplish? 
protectors and their associated behaviors and responses have to be understood and properly addressed and attended to if one is going to successfully work on his mitos, work on developing one's, one's character and only understanding where they're coming from and addressing them and, and working with them, only then is one going to be able to have, like we talked about in the first uh, video, is one going to be able to be that Baal Tshuva who's going to go through the transformative change, which is going to change them on a fundamental core level. This perspective is captured, this curiosity necessary to understand what's going on is captured by Dr. Gabor Mate. I've mentioned him b- before, where he said, in reference to addicts, he says famously, the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain? The addiction, he says, is a response to the pain which one has experienced. And since a person has these maladaptive behaviors of how to numb the pain or distract themselves from the pain with the substance, their substance of choice, so therefore, the question isn't so much why the addiction. We know why the addiction. The addiction is to take care of the pain. The real question is, the fundamental question, the deep question is, why is there so much pain? What is causing them pain, which requires the numbing which, they, which they're going through? And as we know, self-control is not going to be the solution to a person who's going to be suffering in, the, in that way. One has to explore deeply what the response is, what it's trying to protect, What's the pain which we're afraid that we're going to experience if we don't have the, the, this response? In an understanding, a curiosity towards that, an understanding of those things, that's the work, that's the avoda, which it takes in order to become a Baal Tshuva, a person who's going to be able to experience this transformative uh, change in their lives, rather than using Tshuva, thinking that self-control is going to be the, uh, the, the, the salvation of everything is what's going to change everything. The reason why year after year after year, we keep going back to the same Averas, we keep confessing, we keep doing tshuva and feeling the regret and uh, saying vidui uh, uh, for the same Averas year after year is because we've, until now at least, we've thought that self-control is going to be the solution. If I could just flip on that switch of self-control, I'll take better control of my behavior and then I'll be able to stop all the things which, uh, which, I, which, I, which I want to stop. And that comes from the perspective largely because we think of tshuva only in terms of repentance. If we think of tshuva only in terms of repentance, like we said, all we're trying to do is undo the avera. I commit an avera, I need to go back in time, I need to undo that through the process of harata and vidu and kabbalah al-asid. I need to have regret, I need to confess, I need to make a commitment towards the future. And then I've properly repented I went through the motions. I'm a shove. Going back to the first video, I have done the practice, the, the, the mechanics of repenting. And as a result of that, now seemingly I should have undone the whole thing and I've, and I've solved the problem. But if we only translate tshuva in terms of just trying to repent, so we're not going to go ahead and experience this transformative uh, tshuva, which is going to fundamentally change the very existence of, of who we are. Tshuva, at its core, is intended to relieve our various protectors, managers, as well as firefighters, of their vital roles and to allow our core self, the calm and the curious and the compassionate side, to be able to emerge as the leader of the system. The protector's role was very vital, it was very very valuable. It helped shield us from pain. 
but we're now older, we're now better capable, more mature, and we're better able to handle things. And we could tell those managers, the core self could emerge and say, you know what? I'm going to drive the boat from now on. I'm going to direct the ship and I'm going to be, to be in charge. And that's really what we say in the Haftorah this morning, where we say, Shuva Yisrael, Ad Hashem Elokecha. That the purpose of Shuva is not to simply go back in time to the moment before we committed the Avera. The purpose of Shuva is to go all the way back to our core, to our essence, which is mitachas kiseyakov, from beneath Hashem's throne, where our souls were taken out of. That's ultimately what we're trying to, uh, to do. Repentance is a process of securing forgiveness. But Shuva is much deeper than repentance. Shuva is a restoration of our authentic self. Yom Kippur, as we know, we dress in white. There's a lot of practices which we have, which are done specifically to resemble angels. And the reason why we go out of our way to try and uh, behave and act like angels and dress like angels in terms of white is because we believe that the neshama which we have, the ad the neshama, which is taken mitachas kisah which is similar to the level of angels, that represents our authentic self and our core self. And on Yom Kippur, we try and go ahead and we try and tap into and we try and uncover that authentic core self without any of the coverings which we normally put over it, without any of the protectors of managers and firefighters which shield it and to try and, and, and restrain it. But we're going to go ahead and we're going to try and uncover all of that. And in that regard, tshuva isn't tr- translating tshuva as repentance, doesn't fully capture what tshuva is. I think a better translation, which is more in line with the translation of return of shuv is going to be recovery. What do I mean by that? What are we, what are we recovering? The process of tshuva to be a bal tshuva, not just a shove, but to be a bal tshuva means to recover our authentic self, our core self, the part of us that's calm and compassionate and, and, and capable and curious and all, and all of those things. That's the ultimate goal of tshuva is to go ad Hashem Elokecha, to allow the neshama, the beauty of the neshama, the sanctity of the neshama, the holiness of the neshama to be what's going to define who we are and what we are, for that to be able to shine through and to be exposed and to not have all of the coverings which are there in terms of, uh, in terms of protectors and managers and firefighters and to allow that core self to be able to shine through. We're not just repenting to go back to the moment before the Avera. We're trying to go on a more fundamental level, a more transformative level, to go all the way back, Ad Hashem because that's where our soul comes from, and that's where our neshama, that's where our core self continues, always continues to arise, because the core self never becomes injured. The reason why Rosh Hashanah, going back to that question, the reason why Rosh Hashanah is considered to be two of the Aser Tshuva, we struggle with that because we don't do any tshuva on the two days of Rosh Hashanah. There's no slicha, there's no vidu, there's no any of those things. But that question, why are the days of Rosh Hashanah considered to be part of the Aser Tshuva, that's a question only when we translate tshuva as repentance. So if the point is repentance, we expect to see repentance on these days. If two of the days there's no repentance whatsoever, then it doesn't make sense that they should be called, they should be considered two of the Aser Shemei Tshuva. But if we think of tshuva in terms of recovery, 
and specifically recovery of authentic self, recovery of, uh, of core self, of who we really are. So a major element of the recovery of our authentic core self is the understanding and the relationship, the dynamic of the relationship between ourselves and Hashem. Hashem is the Melech and we are the Evan. And understanding that is an, such an essential part of who we are because ultimately we are here to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That is part of the authentic core self of who we are. And when we understand that tshuva is recovery of authentic core self, and part of that includes the dynamic of the relationship between ourselves and Hashem, and the recognition that He's the Melech, He is the Mitzvah, He's the one who commands, then we understand it makes perfect sense why Rosh Hashanah, even without repentance, Rosh Hashanah are two of the days of the Aser Sumei Tshuva, because on a recovery level, recovery of authentic core self, it makes perfect sense why they would be included in those, uh, those two days. And this is the goal of Tshuva, like we said in the Halacha. The goal is Now we go back to that. The reason why we need to be contemplative, the reason why we need to be reflective, the reason why we're going to be searching for Averas, the search is to figure out the source of the pain. The source of the pain which leads us to the negative character traits which we are trying to undo. Why do we gossip? And why do we get angry? And why are we short-tempered? And why all of the things which, are, which we do, those negative things which lead to the Averas, if we are if we could examine, insert, and try to identify the sources of those pain, to treat the pain at its core, not a band-aid on the surface, not trying to use self-control on a surface level, but to try and get to the very core of it, which is much deeper than that. So then we could ultimately be restored to our core self, which is calm and confident and curious and playful and all, and all of those things. But the only way to be able to do that is to be able to heal those scarred, injured parts that we've, we've accumulated emotionally over the years, primarily during our, during our childhood. And in fact, as Rabbi Sral says, going back to Rabbi Sral's statement, it's easier to learn all of Shas than it is to go ahead and ch- change one character trait. So indeed, it's a very difficult thing. It's a very difficult process to go ahead and to be able to find exactly what that part is which pains us, and what are the, the protectors are trying to protect us from. But in, in case anybody thinks that it's too difficult, and it's something which is beyond our grasp, and it's something which is beyond what we could do, so it's important to be mindful of what we read in last week's parsha. according to those who showed him, who say that it's referring to the mitzvah of tshuva. The Torah says, It's not hidden from you. Nor is it distant. It's not in the heavens, nor is it something which is on the other side of the sea. Thinking of tshuva in terms of something which is hidden, distant, in the heavens, or on the other side of the sea, that would lead us to believe that it's too hard. It's not something that we can do. And therefore, the Torah tells us that's not the case. Tshuva is not going to be that difficult. You don't have to go outside of yourself. You don't have to go into heavens. You don't have to be such a tzaddik that you can get into the heavens. You don't have to cra- travel across the sea and you don't have to do anything. Because this matter of tshuva, it's very close to you. It's right there inside of your heart because everybody knows themselves. 
everybody knows what their pain is. If everybody takes some time to think and reflect and to contemplate why it is that when I have these responses, which are not conscious responses, not an exercise of Bechira, these are instinctive responses which we have. If you think about where they are and why they're happening, you give some thought to it, you'll realize, this is very close. It's right there in your mouth. It's right there in your heart. And every person has the ability to go ahead and do so. Every person could go ahead and be able to have this transformative experience wherein tshuva is not going to be simply repentance. We're not simply going to be a shove. Somebody is going to go through the motions and the mechanics of tshuva. But what we're striving for, we're trying to accomplish is to be that Baal Tshuva, the one for whom is going to be the guiding principle to understand at the depth and at the core of all of those things which have pained us, which lead us to all these maladaptive behaviors, which lead to the sins which we commit, so that we should be able to heal them and be able to heal them at the very fundamental, on the very core level. And once all of those things are healed, then we could restore, then our Nishoma is going to be what's going to guide our behavior, what's going to guide our decisions. And then when we interact with other people, it's not going to be with these maladaptive traits, such as a friend who's going to be responding with anger. He won't need to do that anymore because his pain is going to be healed. And it's not going to be a conscious choice that she makes. It's not going to be an exercise in self-control. What it's going to be, it's going to be, he's now going to be healed at that place. And once he's healed, the instinct to respond with anger is no longer going to arise. And this, I think, is such an important understanding of tshuva, to understand that tshuva is not simply repentance. Repentance would be a shav. The purpose of tshuva is to become the baal tshuva, is to be transformative on a core level, on a fundamental level, to sort of get back to tshuva Yisrael, all the way back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so that we can then have a full attachment to him, and with that in place, with a successful Aser Shemei Tshuva, the remaining days, and Yom Kippur, then Emir Tzashem, with that, uh, that, uh, that all in place, will be able to experience the true joy of Haviani HaMalach HaDarav, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, bringing in his domain, which is the Sukkah, will be able to experience the Vesamachta Bechagecha, the true joy in elation, which we're supposed to have, knowing that we've been forgiven for our sins, knowing that we've healed ourselves, knowing that we were Shuvi Yisrael, Ad Hashem all the way back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and that is ultimately the greatest Simcha which we could experience of all. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.